2: Welcome to our newest season of Humane Podcast in 2021. Humane is your first look at the startups and industry titans that are leading and disrupting ML and AI, data science, developer tools, and technical education. I am your host, David Jakubowicz, and this is Humane. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Now, on to our show. Welcome back, listeners, to the Humane Podcast. Today's episode features Steve Schwartz, an AI author, an investor, and a serial entrepreneur. Steve is the author of the book, Evil Robots, Killer Computers, and Other Myths, The Truth About AI and the Future of Humanity. Steve's also a multiple-time serial entrepreneur with ventures throughout the technology ecosystem and he invests in early stage startups. We'll have a jam-packed episode on all these topics today and more. Steve, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you, David. Great to be here.
2: Absolutely. It's great to have a fellow uh, New Yorker entrepreneur, and it's great to see the ecosystem, of course, come back in full growth now that uh, we believe the pandemic is potentially behind us. Full disclosure, David, I'm, I'm a Red Sox fan. Oh, man, those, you know, I was going to say the Yankees, but uh, it's okay. I still got some love in my heart for you, Steve.
3: <laughs> okay,
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's you know it's good. And uh, you know you think about sports, you think about everything happening in, in the Northeast, and you have a very in-depth background in technology and AI. And you know, I think of sports today. My favorite sport, actually, is tennis. I'll be frank, and I, and I love one of the benefits, maybe the only benefit from the pandemic for tennis was now the AI cameras are being used for every single shot. Is the shot in, is the shot out, when you serve, when you hit the line. And um, I'm sure similar things are happening in baseball and other industries around the world. So can you start, just tell us a little bit about your career and why you're so passionate about AI and technology?
3: Absolutely, and I, I didn't realize you were a fellow tennis player. I play four days a week. I love tennis.
2: Oh, we're going to have to play sometime out in the city or out in Stanford. Yeah,
3: absolutely. Excellent. Let me tell you a little bit about my background. So, I started my career in AI way back in 1979 when I moved to Connecticut to do postdoctoral research at Yale University with Roger Shank, who was one of the pioneers of AI. Then came several AI startups one of which made a public offering, and another became one of the leading business intelligence products of the 1990s. That was a a product called Esperant. Then came a number of other startups, some non-AI, as well as, and I did this as both an entrepreneur and an investor. Tango ended up as the fifth best IPO of 2011, and my most recent company, Device42, doubled or, or tripled revenues every year from the time we started it. In 2012, to the time we sold it in 2019, and it's continuing to do well. My uh, co-founder is is the CEO and continues to uh, run it nicely. And currently, I'm uh, since I wrote my book, I'm advising companies, investing, writing, and, and speaking on AI.
2: And this is not your first book. You know, you've uh, published before as a researcher and scholar. So can you tell me a little bit about, you know, your journey having previously published and now with this new book, why were you passionate about launching a new book?
3: I can certainly say it's it's my first book in 30 years, <laughs> to give you an idea of how old I am.
2: Well, AI has been around, so. It,
3: it has. So, you know, it's been, yeah, it was really hot in the early 80s late 70s, early 80s. And it was a really exciting time to be in an AI. And then it kind of died out towards the end of the 80s when it when it didn't uh, fulfill its promise. And then, you know, since about 2000 with the success of, uh, you know, we're starting to see self-driving cars and machine translation and more recently um, image recognition, AI has really started to catch on in the last five or 10 years. It's been exploding. But you know, what, what kind of led me to write my book was, do you remember when IBM's computer beat the Jeopardy! champions?
2: Oh, I still love watching Ken Jennings on TV, but oh, I, I do too. remember that. Yeah, right?
3: yeah. yeah. You know, I, and of course, I was rooting for the computer. and I thought it was, I just thought it was great when the computer won. But, you know, I kind of had a pretty good idea of what was going on under the hood. And I knew there was no real intelligence there. It was It was just, you know, massive... Dictionaries and you know big plots of, of words that the system was was sorting through and matching up to the questions and you know in, in IBM David Ferrucci who led that project eventually published a uh, ten or twelve series of articles in IBM's in an IBM journal that explained exactly how the system worked and and it was really just a lot of really really clever tricks and statistics but then IBM started marketing. Watson that wasn't the original name but it you know it became it was I guess it was the Watson division so they started calling their technology Watson they they started marketing it as you know their system can think and reason just like a human and I was really turned off by that and then Microsoft had a had a system that they claimed could read better than people and you know it was there was some fact in that statement, but it's really untrue. I mean, it could read, perform one reading comprehension test at better than human level, which is not at all indicative of intelligence. And you know, well, we were saying more and more of the same thing. And I had a, I had dinner with Roger Shank in in New York about four years ago, and I was complaining to him about all these all, all this hype about about that that part of AI that wasn't true. And he said. Well, why don't you write a book? You've been, you've been in the field forever, so I did.
2: And it's it's so interesting, Steve, that you mentioned uh, just a couple of minutes ago. You were rooting for the machine, and and I could see a few reasons why we'd root for the machines. You know, first it was you've been seeing the technology over the years and decades, and you're like you wanted to get to that cutting edge breakthrough moment, which we might be now in this. Watershed moments, so to speak, as you mentioned, with machine translation and image processing. But you know, should we always be rooting for the machines? Should we sometimes root for the humans? So, what inspired this uh, new book? So,
3: you know, I'm just fascinated with how much progress we've made in in AI over the last 20 years. You know, we have we, we can take a picture, and our smartphone can say, "Oh, yeah, that's David." and that's Joshua, and that's my two-year-old grandson, and go to a foreign country and have everything translated for me. It's just amazing what AI is doing today. So it's it's real technology. It's It's affecting the world, and it's exciting, but it's not intelligent. And there's no way that we're going to get to that next step that we see in science fiction movies, where The machines are intelligent and, you know, we have the Terminator scenario where they try to, uh, the fearsome Terminator tries to eliminate all the humans, or there are lots of um, R2-D2, you know, that's not what's being built today. What I tried to do was to write a book, a mainstream book that would explain to people how today's AI really works and why we can't get from here to there. That is, we can't build computer systems That are really intelligent based on what we have now. And there's no reason to think that what we have now will ever evolve into real human level intelligence.
2: There's so much to do to get from where we are to exactly what you just described of human level intelligence. I think to uh, my former uh, insurance provider, Lemonade Insurance, you know, is really grown startup. Uh, love what they were doing with technology automation in the insurance space and what their app has done has convinced consumers that as an AI first app you go in you have this conversational bot quote Maya right that you think you're chatting with a human but you know you're not it's a decision tree matching different conditions and then and everything everything throughout is just automations right but not really AI
3: that's right i I, I like to distinguish between conventional programming and AI. Where conventional programming is where a, a programmer writes down a set of exact instruction and tells the computer exactly what to do. Where in AI, the computer learns something and doesn't have to be told exactly what to do. And what people are afraid of is mostly the, the conventional kind. So most of the things that are taking jobs, for example, is conventional software, not AI software.
2: And when, when you think about this with the jobs that are being taken, we've been hearing much of the last few months about this great resignation and about a lot of the antiquated industries going through automation and cloud services as a result of the pandemic or being accelerated by these contributing factors. And what is it about these jobs is that there's a task that is repetitive, right? You can complete a task over and over again. For example, let's look at a restaurant. You can go to the restaurant and the the waiter sits you and your, your family and friends down at the table and hands you a menu. Do you actually need that physical menu or can you have a QR code to scan that food yourself and save on physical costs and save on the time of service, so that, that that's one benefit that has impacted the service industry, and we've seen it all throughout different parts of the economy, both before the pandemic, but now being accelerated as the world uh, starts thinking about technology first. Exactly,
3: and that's and that's automation, but it's conventional software. It's not AI, and. You know, most of the examples of where computers are replacing people, it's conventional software. It's not AI software.
2: Yeah, there's very, very few scenarios that are starting to emerge. Recently, it was in the news that um, the big uh, company that uh, many of us may use for our online shopping that we may know of, Instacart. In fact, they purchased this company called Caper AI. And uh, Caper AI was an AI company out of New York, out of Brooklyn, that basically built these shopping carts that had these cameras attached to them to recognize the barcodes of your items, so that then you get to the checkout when you're buying your groceries, and you can very quickly process that. There's a little bit of automation, a little bit of computer vision or image recognition, so to speak there. And uh, Instacart purchased them to say, well, our shoppers can shop quicker if they have caper AI shopping carts, really interesting use case.
3: It really is an interesting use case. And I don't mean to say that there's, you know, no contribution of AI to automation that, you know, that is replacing jobs or, or changing the way we, we do things. And the, you know, the big place where AI is really being used in the real world is computer vision. And there are a lot of exciting things you can do, do with it. You can, you know, in a a grocery store, you can monitor the behavior of people to see what they're taking off the shelf, putting back on the shelf, the application you just mentioned that makes uh, self-checkout faster because the cameras can uh, can see what what's in the shopping cart. So yeah, that's clearly AI, and it contributes a little bit to job loss. But it, you know, I still think it's mostly automation that's that's doing it.
2: It's so fascinating that as a fellow investor uh, in the startup ecosystem, I gave a lot of thought to when I was founding my uh, syndicate and now emerging fund. You know, what's the name going to be? Is it going to be like, you know, AI Ventures 2.0, Machine Translation, you know, whatever I would give a name. And I came up with the name Data Power Ventures because I was thinking back to all the the research where it all started, even like when I used to do math competition on paper with no calculators. Imagine, figure there was a day right that we, we did math on paper and in our heads, mental math, uh, let alone it all comes back to the data. And so, when I also came up with theses, you know, my passion on it, none of them were AI actually, when I talk to investors, they're they're shocked. They say, where's the AI? I say, but I I think you have to invest earlier. I think we have to look at infrastructure. We have to look at the technology. And so I think this might resonate with with some of the the things that you talk about in your book, in Evil Robots, Killer Computers, and Other Myths. So I talk about, through the fund and the syndicate, I talk about data-intensive applications. I talk about data software automation. Talk about data developer tools. I talk about real-time insights and human augmented workflows. I wanted to get your take. What's your thoughts on some of these? If they resonate you with you, or you have some uh some contrary opinions?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my my first, you know, big win in the as, as an entrepreneur was an AI system that was in business intelligence, which is a data space. So I'm I'm right with you on the on the data side and Processing data in AI is a really important area as we we both know because we share an investment in a a particular company named uh, Y-Data where the emphasis is on how you get data quality into your AI models. And it's what they do that's really interesting. And I hadn't actually focused on it until I talked to this company was there's a big industry to clean data for tools like business intelligence that have been along around for a long time and there are there are companies that are I think multi-billion dollar companies that provide uh, data cleaning tools data extraction and so forth and you would think that you could just take those tools clean your data with them and then feed them into an AI algorithm you know to build an application but that's not the way it that's not the way it works because with ai it has to be an iterative process so you need to actually clean the data try out some models see what's not working well and then you you may have to go back and you know generate some synthetic data or perform other data quality operations and try it again and it's an iterative process so those big platforms that are out there for business intelligence don't necessarily work for ai and i i think that's a an interesting insight that this company we invested in has come up with.
2: It's so fascinating because when you look at these data developer tools, at the heart of the matter, they're focused on experimentation. And I think rightfully so, Stephen, you mentioned that it's not just a one-and-done process. Human in the loop, data in the loop, these systems are iterating and evolving over time because, well, if they weren't, then they wouldn't be data systems. It would just be, as you mentioned it, this plain vanilla software and data just complicates everything, which is why I, I think in the data industry, we're perhaps even a decade or more behind the software industry today. Even though we're emerging into this decade of data, there's so much work to be done.
3: Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, slightly, slightly tangential to what, to that thought, The the human-in-the-loop aspect of AI is really coming to the forefront. I mean, if you look at AI in the medical area, for a long time, you know, probably the first application of computer vision in the medical area was radiology. Everybody thought that, sure, with AI, you could diagnose illnesses from medical images better than the radiologists, and it's never actually worked out that way. I have friends who are radiologists who use those AI tools. And they say, yeah, sometimes they find things that I might've missed, but at the same time, they miss things that we would have found. And that's gonna be true with most applications of AI. They don't do things like people. So they do you know, some of it better, some of it worse. But if you put the human in the loop, and that radiologist can now take a closer look where the AI found something that the human radiologist didn't find, they're going to provide better care, far better care because of the AI. But if you leave the AI on its own and you try to get rid of the radiologist, it's not going to work because it's going to miss some really important things. And I think that human in the loop is going to become a a theme that we see over and over again in, in the coming years. At Parker, our purpose is simple.
0: We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. After the holidays, a little cash goes a long way. The Chime checking account has tons of benefits to help, like fee-free overdraft up to $200 for eligible members, no monthly fees, and thousands of fee-free ATMs. You can even get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. Sign up for Chime today at chime.com slash goals 24. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out of network ATM withdrawal fees may apply. Access to direct deposits up to two days early depends on the timing of the submission of the payment file from the payer.
2: I really like that theme of human in the loop because I'm imagining right now that I'm a radiologist. And I get, you know, whatever scan in front of me. Previously, And I'm looking through it with my eyes and with magnifying glasses and, you know, zooming in the computer and changing the resolutions and the negative and everything, right, to try to see if there's an issue or not with the scan. Well, why should the machine just do it? I think the radiologist should still look at the scan, but it'll be augmented by these AI tools. We'll have these rectangular boxes and circles and things that say with this 95% probability the ai thinks that you know something's going on in this scan in this image and then the radiologist says okay let me fact find let me let me run some experiments let me see if this is right or not and they can get to a diagnosis quicker without making those mistakes i agree with you i think that's where the human in the loop would be really powerful
3: absolutely and if you look at a really uh, charged subject the use of ai in warfare you can take that computer vision system and put it on top of a drone and and put a uh, a gun on the drone and tell that computer vision system that when you find you know terrorist x here's his picture go find him and shoot him well sometimes it'll get it right and sometimes it'll get it wrong you know if you're going to do something like that i think you should have a human that makes the final decision that's not how it's going to end up working.
2: Mm, Yeah. Back in May, 2021, we had on the Humane podcast, Steven Umbrello. He's a a researcher actually on autonomous systems in the European Union. And um, he's at the Institute of Ethics and Emerging Technologies. And we, we actually spent a whole hour talking about warfare and AI and warfare. And it was such a fascinating dialogue, everything about you know, the design of the system, the accuracy of the system, the determinism of the system, the debate between humans on this innovation, and where are the nuances for autonomy. So fascinating because, uh, you know, one of the biggest insights I had during the pandemic, I was sharing with uh, a colleague the other day, I said, during the pandemic, it seemed as if the whole world, for one moment, united together. We must battle and fight and destroy covid right we all came together we built vaccines we did incredible research and now the world's you know step at a time right getting back to a pre-pandemic world in a digital first society but then just in the last few months countries are fighting again (laughs) it's like human nature will be human nature yeah it really is right so it's like can technology help there and so you bring up a fair point with this uh where is technology appropriate or not appropriate to help humans coexist without uh, causing harm.
3: Right. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, it's it's just really unlikely that militaries around the world will do the right thing there.
2: Yeah. It's it's the early days to see with, with all this technology. Um, and, you know, thinking more, you know, we talk about investments. We talk about businesses that you've scaled and, and have seen grow. And we're in this new we can almost say technological renaissance today of startups. We're seeing a lot of startups grow very fast, not only in valuations with venture-backed funding, but they're building teams of tens, hundreds, thousands of people. And I know, Steve, you've seen that scale. You've led that scale before. What's some of your take on the current technology ecosystem today that you're seeing?
3: Well, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of the rollout of, a specific type of AI, supervised learning, which is a type of machine learning. We're seeing it applied in many, many different areas. I actually have a database I keep of every time I see a new application of of supervised learning. And it's fascinating. It's being used in almost every area of business, of government, of the nonprofit world. It's fascinating how much application there is. But at the same time, it's it's a very narrow technology. And most of the AI companies that are growing up are building these applications where what they're doing is they're, they're offering a product or a service, and the AI makes that product or service better, more competitive, perhaps, you know, like in the case of the shopping cart example that you gave before, maybe it was something that wouldn't have been possible without that AI system, without that computer vision system, which is the result of a supervised learning algorithm. So what, what you're really looking at with these AI companies from an investor perspective is an application. And investors need to make sure that they don't get um, let off track by the credentials you know, of the people in the company, all the PhDs they have, all the complex... AI terminology and, and so forth. Because ultimately what most of these companies are building is a product or application. And you can evaluate that company 95% the same way you would if it was just a, a piece of conventional software. In other words, you know, forget about the AI for a minute. Look at whether there's a market for the product, look at the product market fit, look at the team look at the business plan the, the distribution strategy the finances and the competitive analysis and then you ask okay where does the ai fit well it's something that nobody else can do okay now you go in and you evaluate that claim as a as a competitive claim but it's you know it's one of the last things you do when you evaluate one of these ai applications as opposed to you know getting caught up with all of the terminology and, and credentials and so forth. So I, I've spoken a number of times to uh, angel investor groups, and I I try to make that point.
2: That, that makes a lot of sense, right? You could have all the PhDs. You could have all the cutting-edge technology, you know, the, the latest programming language, the best, best technology. But is it commercially viable? Can it actually be monetized? Can it actually be built into a business? I know one of the technologies we've seen of late OpenAI, they launched GPT-3 just in the last couple of years, this uh, massive dictionary, so to speak, of phrases that have relationships. And based on inputting one, you get some dialogue that's generated. It's actually quite good. It's not perfect, but it's quite good. And for a while, everyone thought it was just this tool. Okay, fun, you know, type the word tennis. You get a paragraph in Serena Williams. How cool. But now we're seeing different startups using this GPT-3 technology to create business cases. One of those, Jarvis AI, helps with copywriting and copy editing for articles. So if you're a marketer, you're, you're a blog writer, you can generate that article and then maybe do it a little quicker, get some innovation, get some inspiration. Full disclosure, not an investor in Jarvis AI, but I find their, the business model, the commercial viability really interesting there. And, and that may make the difference between great technology or great technology in the business.
3: Yeah, it absolutely is the business model that matters. You know, I'm really interested to see how far GPT-3 takes some of these businesses because GPT-3 can generate, as you said, a news story or a, you you can give it a prompt and it'll do a continuation of that prompt with something that's going to be grammatically correct. And in a lot of times it sounds like it makes sense, but when you dig into it, a lot of times the facts are all wrong. They've just kind of strung words together in a grammatically correct way. And in a, in a sequence that you might hear from a person. So when you look at using one of these tools to actually generate, say blog posts or news stories, a lot of the facts are going to be wrong. And they're not, really going to make sense if you drill down into them. So what's going to be the implication of that? It's, you know, is it only going to be useful if you, you know, there's there's all kinds of search engine optimization where you don't really care if what you write makes sense? You know, are we going to generate a lot of crap using GPT-3 and put it out there for search engine optimization purposes? I'll be interested to see how the tool is actually used out
2: there. I do agree, actually, with that sentiment that I I think there's going to be more content created. And a lot of that content is going to create noise. And then that noise is going to get further fed into the next big language models, which will then uh, maybe not be the golden source of truth that we're hoping for as, as these models keep evolving. But, you know, again, it's, it's technology, right? Like, okay, right. great. You got the next model with now 10 trillion parameters, you know, yeah. one Yoda by the parameters. Okay. But is that going to create the AI robot? I've, you know, in the last year I've seen now, there's been new startups as always talking about launching this, uh, made in your house or this robot that can now you know, clean a table, almost put dishes in the dishwasher, or get you a can of Coke. I mean, it's interesting, but it is. is it there yet? Is it really there yet? Are we living in the Jetsons?
3: Yeah, no, I don't know. We're far from that because the computers don't really understand. So they can't really have a conversation with you. You know, anytime they're having a conversation with you, they're, you know, effectively reading from a script or, or using keywords to, you know, kind of determine what the input is from their list of possible inputs. In in terms of being able to intelligently move around, well, robots are still, you know, at a fairly infant level stage. They, they can't do that much. They can't, you know, it's very difficult for a, a robot to go and pick something up and put it somewhere. That turns out to be, require a huge amount of programming and, and, and training. And so right now, that aspect of robots is is fairly early on. Although I think I think that part will be solved. What I don't think will be solved will be the ability to have that conversation with Rosie, the robot, in a way where they really understand you.
2: So let's do a forward looking statement. I mean we're we're wrapping up twenty twenty one. We're coming into the the growth of this decade of data with modern data tools, with the excitement around all things data, ML, AI. Steve, what are you seeing on the horizon or what's getting you excited again about the industry?
3: So what I'm excited about as an investor over the next uh, few years are tools that are going to help companies solve some of the social issues that are arising around these machine learning systems. So for example, systems tend to be biased and that that comes from having biased data. You know, the classic case being computer vision systems that are trained on mostly white males, they do a great job recognizing the faces of white males, but not such a good job on non-white males. So that's an example of a biased systems. The, The people who put the system together aren't biased, but it ends up biased because the training set doesn't have a, a diverse set of data. And what we're seeing is companies are, are getting, having a reputational impact by putting out systems that that are biased, either, either computer vision systems that are biased or hiring systems or loan systems. They're also starting to run into regulatory issues. So in Europe, a system has to be able to explain its reasoning if it makes decisions that that impact people, like hiring or loan decisions. So all of these things put additional burdens on companies that are rolling out AI applications. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for companies that are helping, that are developing software and services to help companies build non-biased, explainable systems. And then you have a you know whole issue around when you build a, a machine learning system, it, it deteriorates over time. So it might it might only work for a couple of days and then start to go downhill. It might work for weeks, but you have to monitor those systems and, and go back and retrain them when the performance goes down. And all of that is, it's a lot of effort. So there's a whole area in AI called machine learning operations, ML ops, that's attracting a lot of attention. And I think that's where we're going to see a lot of AI companies really grow over the next few years. And there's going to be some some really big breakthroughs in in those areas
2: yeah I, I completely agree we previously on humane we had weights and biases when they had raised their uh, series a round and, yep. and common ml and their seed round and these are just two examples of companies that have gone on to massive not just rounds but you know thousands of developers using those tools so it's it is the early days um, and it's exciting to see where the industry goes uh, Steve what's uh what's next for you as well
3: you know I'm I'm trying to decide if and when I'm going to do something next right now, I'm working with some angel groups on uh, investing in startups. I'm mentoring some small companies. I'm, I'm doing a little bit of consulting. I'm an expert witness in a, a big case involving uh, Amazon Alexa. And I'm trying to decide, you know, do I really want to get involved in another in another startup? It's, it's so much work, but it's so much fun, too.
2: It's all about the startup itch, which we both have. And I think it takes us from year to year to venture the venture. It's been my pleasure having uh, Steve Schwartz today on Humane, author of Evil Robots, Killer Computers and Other Myths, The Truth About AI and the Future of Humanity. You can check it out on Amazon, get your Kindle version there as well. Steve's a fellow investor and a serial entrepreneur in the technology ecosystem. Steve, thanks so much for joining us on Humane.
3: This was great, David. Thanks for having me.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humane Podcast. Did the episode measure up to your thoughts on ML and AI, data science, developer tools, and technical education? Share your thoughts with me at humanepodcast.com forward slash contact. Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe and leave a review, and listen for more episodes of Humane.